The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Uh, but we're Romans 6, verse 1. Romans 6, 1 says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, friends, we are in the second week of a little series we're in, just a little three-week series we're in, uh, on this idea of sacred. And we're looking at three practices that the church considers sacred, that they have sort of a a holy otherness to them, if you will. Uh, And so last week we looked at the liturgy and we saw uh, how how worship forms us and how it shapes us and the importance of that. Uh, This week, uh, it's it's as if I planned it, we're going to talk about baptism Um, And then next week, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper uh, or Holy Communion. Uh, But I'll just be honest with you, before we even get into the message for today, uh, I feel like I just got to talk about the elephant in the room. Um, And and I want to talk about the presidential election from this past week, which I know everyone's tightening up. All right. We're okay. We're okay. All right. Uh, But I I felt very, very convicted about this. I remember uh, Tuesday night as I was watching everything unfold. Uh, I just felt this, like, weight on my heart that I said, Gabe, like, we have to talk about this as a church. We, we, we can't not. And the struggle for me this week is, like, like, I haven't really known how to. Like, I just, I haven't. And I'm not even sure if what I'm about to say right now is going to be the best way to do it. All right? So you just have some grace with me. All right? But as I've been praying over this and saying, God, uh, in the midst of this sort of turmoil and polarization in our country, what does it mean for us to be the church? What do we do as the church? And, uh, and God's kind of drawn my heart and my mind to this passage, James 1.19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Hear that again. My dear brothers and sisters, Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Can we do that, church? Can you do that? Can we be quick to listen and slow to speak? And I'm going to talk to three distinct groups of people real quick. 
And, uh, and so if I hit your people group and you get all offended, don't worry. I'll take off the other guys next, all right? So just hang in there, all right? So let's start here. To my conservative friends that are here this morning. I woke up Wednesday morning, and I read an update from friends of mine uh, that, that live in Chicago, and they're a biracial couple. They woke up that morning, and their five-year-old daughter went up to them and said, Mommy and Daddy, did, did Donald Trump win? And they said yes. And she got visibly frightened, this little girl, and said, does that mean I'm going to be bullied in school now? Now listen, I realize I'm talking to a group of people in Central Texas, okay? I know how this county voted. Statistically speaking, I know how probably most of this congregation voted, okay? And so I know the temptation to hearing a story like that is going to be to say, oh, come on. Come on. Some loudmouth guy gets elected does not mean that a little biracial girl is going to get bullied. And I hope you're right. I hope you're right. That might not be the case. And if that were to happen, I'm sure that none of you would be okay with that. Okay? But here's my point. Can you be quick to listen and slow to speak? Can you be quick to listen and slow to speak? Can you recognize that it's not your place to tell another person what they're allowed to be afraid of? That it's not your place to tell another person what they're allowed to be anxious or worried about? Most of us in this room are not in those shoes. And so you be quick to listen. Slow to speak. So often we're quick to speak and slow to listen. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. To my liberal friends in this room. I woke up Wednesday morning. Read an update from a friend of mine who I grew up with, uh, who's still living in Detroit. And he said this. To every one of you misogynistic, racist, bigoted, homophobic, xenophobic people who voted for Trump, consider yourself cut off from me. We are no longer friends. I want you out of my life. Now, I trust that none of you have been that toxic in your reaction to the election. But I also know that anger can burn deeply for people when you care passionately about things. And so to my liberal friends, can you be quick to listen and slow to speak? Can you not impose a bunch of incredibly harsh labels on people that are just trying to love their neighbors and see the world differently than you do? Can you be quick to listen and slow to speak? Finally, third group of people. Uh, those of you that felt like perhaps you've kept your nose clean in this election, uh, that you maybe voted third party or you didn't vote, or, or maybe voted for one of them, but, but you're just like, no, I'm not falling into this. Let me tell you a story. It's Wednesday morning. I woke up to updates from friends of mine across country, pastor friends, fellow Christians. And they said, hey, the, the tomb is empty. Jesus is still Lord. No matter who's president, God's still on his throne. God is still sovereign. Yes, of course that's true. Of course I believe that. But friends, if that's been you, can you be quick to listen? Can you be slow to speak? Can you recognize that, that for, for friends of yours around the country that are maybe legitimately afraid or legitimately angry or legitimately joy-filled, that when you just say something like, well, Jesus is Lord, get over it, it actually sounds like you're brushing over their cares, that you don't care at all. 
And so can you be quick to listen and slow to speak? There's not an easy way out of this, church. There's not. We, we can't just say, Jesus is Lord. We actually have to live as if he is Lord. We've got to love our enemies. We've got to always show compassion. We've got to seek to understand what we don't. We've got to be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Can we do that, church? You can actually respond. Yes? Okay. So I posted uh, this prayer, if you can pull it up for me, Sarah. I posted this prayer on Facebook, and uh, it's, it's my prayer right now, and uh, I'm hoping it will be my prayer forever. Uh, and it's the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, and I'd like you guys to pray it out loud with me this morning. Let's pray. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. Amen. Amen. Thanks. All right. On to our regularly scheduled programming. All right. Shift your heads. Uh, We're talking about baptism today. Uh, And ironically enough, baptism is one of the most divisive topics in church history, right? I mean, literally, wars have been fought over it. Uh, And so there's just no easy breaks for me today, all right? So you just keep me in your prayers. All right, we're going to make it through today. We'll make it through. Uh, But I I am actually, I'm very excited about this topic because uh, baptism really is is one of God's greatest gifts to us. It's just just an awesome blessing that he gives us. And I do want to say this, though. One of the the great things about this church is that we have people that are here that are a part of it from all different backgrounds uh, in denominations. So we have folks that grew up in a non-denominational church, folks that grew up Baptist, folks that grew up Catholic, folks that grew up Lutheran. It's a fair number of you. Uh, we, got, we got folks that maybe grew up with, with no church backgrounds. Uh, and so I understand that. What I'm about to teach today on baptism, some of you may be like, hey, easy, buddy. Just don't get up and leave. You talk to me about it, all right? You can leave after that. Just at least talk to me about it, all right? So, so let's, let's get on with it. What we're going to see in our text for today is this. And we've got to go quick, friends, all right? So hang with me. Uh, we're going to see baptism is for everyone. Baptism gives us an eternal identity. And baptism is a pattern of life to be lived right now. Baptism is for everyone. Baptism gives us an eternal identity. And baptism is a pattern of life for right now. So let's get going. Uh, Baptism is for everyone. Uh, If you'd look with me at our first couple verses in our text for today. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? All right, so our text today is taken from the the book of Romans, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a a group of churches in in the city of Rome. Uh, And as you can tell kind of in our text, we're like coming in towards the end of an argument that Paul's been making. 
Okay, so that's what's happening in our text today. This is him concluding an argument. And, and if you were to go back a few verses in Romans to Romans chapter 5, you'd see that the argument Paul has been making is, is simply this, that, that all of us have sinned, that all of us have fallen short of God's design for life and the way he's intended us to live. And so God in his mercy sent Jesus, and Jesus came, and because of that we now have access to God's grace, that through Jesus' death and resurrection we now, as sinners, we still receive God's grace. And then just two verses before our text for today, he says essentially this. So listen, if you're here and you think you've sinned too much, you think you've messed up too badly, that there's no way God could possibly love me, there's no way God could want anything to do with me, he says, not true. There's always more than enough grace. Grace never runs out. No matter how much you sin, that much more grace increases. What I love is what happens in our text, it says, if Paul is assuming what the next question would be, right? That we'd say in our heads, well, okay, so no matter how much I sin, there's more grace to cover that? Then let's get to sinning, baby, right? Let's, let's get that grace growing and, and covering over all that. And so he says, is that what we should do? Should we keep sinning so that grace may abound? What's he say, verse 2? By no means. That's not how it works. We who died to sin can't live in it. So that's the theological framework of our text. That's what's going on in the background. Let me take that theological framework and, and place it into to real life. All right, let me put some flesh on it. A few weeks ago, uh, I met with a lady. And uh, she had recently, the reason I was meeting with her is because she had recently made a very poor decision. Very, very poor. It was an incredibly selfish thing she did. It put the lives of her children in danger. It put the lives of other people in danger. And as her and I were talking... We're just talking. I'm just going about my thing pastorally. She stopped me and she said, so tell me something, Pastor. Are you in the business of judging people? And I said, I hope not. I said, do you feel judged right now by me? And she said, yes. She said, yes, I feel judged by everyone. She said, after what I've done, I feel like everyone is looking at me and thinking what a horrible person I am. And so I said to her, I said, listen, yes, you made a mistake. And, of course, there's consequences to that. But I can't sit in the seat of judgment here because here's the reality, friend. I've made really selfish decisions. I've made really big mistakes. I've done some really messed up stuff. And yet, God in his grace sent Jesus for me. And yet, God in his grace sent Jesus for you. See, that's, that's what Paul's summarizing here. See, friends, Paul, the, the guy who wrote this letter, who wrote Romans 6, he is the greatest Christian to ever walk the face of the earth. I don't care how good you are, you're not going to live up to him. He's the top dude, right? Like, we would not be gathering in this storefront right now if it wasn't for him. And he says in one of his other letters, Christ Jesus came to save sinners, and he says, of whom I am the worst. See, friends, the message of the gospel is never that we need to better ourselves. The message of the gospel is never that we need to figure it out and get our lives together and clean ourselves up and then dedicate ourselves to God. That's never the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is this, that in your mess, in your brokenness, God dove down into that with his grace and grabbed hold of you. That's the message of the gospel. 
And baptism is a means, it's an instrument, it's a tool that God uses to extend his grace to us. Ephesians 5 says that God sanctifies us by the washing of water in the word. 1 Peter 3 says baptism now saves you. And so, so when I say baptism is for everybody, we mean everybody because everybody needs grace. Everybody needs grace. Now, what happens in baptism? Sorry, that's all well and good, but what happens in baptism? Well, a lot happens. Uh, but what we're going to focus on today uh, in our text is that baptism gives us an eternal identity. All right, so look with me at verses 3 to 4. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. All right, so this set of verses, man, it's, it's kind of wordy, uh, but, it, but it really it packs a punch here. Uh, see, see, Paul says here that somehow in baptism, somehow in baptism, through this simple act we just saw this morning, that, that Jesus Christ unites himself to us. That somehow in baptism we're united to him, we're connected to him. And that just as Jesus died, part of us dies, our sinful nature dies, and that we rise to new life. Ultimately, though, what we see here is that when we're baptized, we're given an eternal identity. We're baptized into Christ Jesus. We're given a new identity, which is actually a pretty incredible thing and has incredibly practical implications. Like baptism, this weird sacrament, churchy thing, what sort of practical implications does that have? Here's the deal. Baptism gives you an identity, an identity throughout time and throughout all cultures, even to this day, everyone is looking for an identity. Everyone asks the question, who am I and how do I know? Doesn't matter where you grew up, when you grew up, whatever that looked like. Everyone asks the question, who am I and how do I know? And cultures have answered that different ways, right? If you were to look at ancient cultures or non-Western cultures today, uh, they would tell you who you are is who our culture says you are. Who you are is who your family says you are. That there's a force outside of you that tells you what your identity is, right? That this is what it means to live here. This is what it means to be a part of this family. This is what we do. This is who we are. This is how that works, right? That's kind of ancient cultures, non-Western cultures. An outside force tells you who you are. Aha. But we don't live there, right? We live in a modern Western culture, and we've rejected this idea that an outside force can tell us who we are, right? So the, uh, the great sociologist uh, Robert Bela in his, uh, his really seminal book, uh, Habits of the Heart, he explores this. And he says, in the modern West, our way we find identity is through what he calls expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. That we say we reject that someone outside of us would tell us who we are. And instead, we look inwards and we look for what he calls our authentic self. And then that becomes our identity, and we live into that. All right, so we got ancient, non-Western cultures. Identity is imposed on you from the outside. Western cultures, we say, no, 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 identity is all about self-discovery, figuring out who you are, your desires, your wishes, your dreams, okay? Here's my point. Both of those will crush you. Both of those don't work. They do not work. Now, for those of us in the West, we get that, right? Traditional culture, if you're told your whole life you're this, you fit this mold, and you don't, man, it's oppressive, it's condemning, it's brutal, it doesn't work. But Western cultural identity is just as oppressive. Why? Because it's all on you. 
because it's all on you, that you've got to achieve it, that you've got to constantly prove to yourself and prove to the outside world that this is who I am, this is who I am, who I say I am. I am what I am, right, Popeye? And guess what? None of us is that consistent. None of us is consistently who we think we are. We just don't do it. And so let me just put some flesh on this, all right? So, so a major place that I am tempted uh, to find my identity, just confession, it's good for the soul. major place that I'm tempted to find my identity is right here. I'm literally doing it right now, preaching, right? Like, like it is my favorite thing to do in the whole world. I love it. I would stay up here all day. If you guys think they're long, they could be longer. Trust me, all right? So, like, like I just, I love it. I think it's, it's a gift I have. And so, so this past summer, um, I was at an event and, and there was a guy there who, who's uh, someone I've looked up to as a preacher for a very long time. He's kind of an icon to me. Uh, and and he, he recognized me. I was like, oh, this is nice. He goes, oh, Gabe. And then he gave me a big hug. And then all these people were, were around us. And he goes, everybody, this kid can preach. And I was like, oh, my God. And, and, and he's just like... <laughs> And, uh, and he's like, he's, this guy's going to be the, the voice of our church body. And I mean, man, after he said that, right, like, like I was elated, you know, like I'm walking on cloud nine. Someone I admire said something positive that I put a lot of my identity in. And see, this is true for all of us. We're all looking for someone to name us. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien put it like this. He said, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Right? We're all looking for that. And that works all well and good when things are going well. My preaching's on point. But three weeks ago when we had a new couple here and three minutes into my sermon, they left. I was dejected. Not for the afternoon, but for weeks. You can ask Sandy. She's had to carry me. Okay? <laughs> for weeks. See, when my identity is simply based on who I am and what I see myself as. It's not enough for me to simply do my best. I need outside validation. I need the praise of the praiseworthy. I need someone to say, you're okay. See, we're all looking for someone to name us. What you're putting your identity in, and if you put it in what others say about you, it'll crush you. If you put your identity in in what you think about yourself, it will ultimately crush you. Haha, but here's the good news. In our text... In baptism, God gives you an eternal identity that can't be touched. In baptism, God says, you're in Christ. In baptism, God says, hey, you're united to me now. Nothing will ever, ever, ever change that. Nothing can ever take that away. See, that's the ultimate praise of the praiseworthy. The God of the universe says, you're mine. Friends, that's what we're all looking for. Galatians 3 puts it like this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed, clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, in baptism in Christ Jesus, God looks at each of you here today. He says, you're my son. He says, you're my daughter. He says, you're my kid. So that, that, that from eternity, I've been planning to grab hold of you. And see, some of you, you've lived your lives and you've maybe embraced certain identities. 
If you've embraced identities that are maybe negative, that, that you're stupid or you're ugly or you're a bad person or you'll never succeed or you're lazy or whatever, and you've maybe embraced and internalized those identities. Or some of you, maybe you've embraced some good identities, that you're smart and you're hardworking, you're disciplined, and you're a good, upstanding, moral citizen. And maybe you've embraced those things. And here in baptism, God says, no, 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 that's not how it's going to work. That's not how it's going to work. Your true identity, the core of who you are, is my child. The core of who you are is my son, is my daughter. I've grabbed hold of you in these waters. There's no power of hell, there's no scheme of man that's ever going to take you from me. What's amazing in our text as we close here is that what we see in baptism is, is, yeah, it's a one-time event. It's one time, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's a one-time event. But it leads us into a life of rediscovering our baptismal identity. Look with me at verses 8 through 11. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. All right, so Paul says here, hey, you're united to Christ in baptism. And Jesus, we know, of course, has defeated death and sin forever. And so you're now united to that, and you're given an identity in Christ. And then verse 11 here, he says, uh, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So he says, live into the identity that you've been given. And see, that's what the Christian life is. It's that simple. It's that simple. The Christian life is living into the identity that God's given you. And see, this is actually key because sometimes I think people think the Christian life works like this. Well, hey, I, I was saved by grace, all right, that, that Jesus came in my life and saved me. I'm saved by grace. But now I've got to work really hard, got to keep myself clean, got to follow all the rules so that I don't lose that grace, so that I don't lose that salvation. Got to be sure I'm doing everything right so that I hang on to it. It's destructive. What this says is that, that Jesus comes to you in his grace in the waters of baptism and he gives you an identity. And nothing changes that. That's just what it is, no matter what. But now the Christian life is living into that identity. It's realizing more and more what it is to be a son of God, what it is to be a daughter of God, what it is to be a follower of Jesus. It's living into that reality. I think of it like this. Uh, Do you guys ever see the movie Hook? Robin Williams, Dustin Hoffman, all right, early 90s. Hey, all right, even the kids. All right, good. Uh, and, uh, and so at any rate, uh, for those of you who haven't experienced uh, this gem of cinematic brilliance, uh, let, me, let me just uh, lay it out for you. Uh, Hook is the, the story of Peter Pan, but Peter Pan has grown up. He's an adult. He's a, he's a lawyer in, like, New York or something. Uh, and, and he and his family, has, he's got two little kids. They end up going to London. Uh, and while they're in London, who should show up but Captain Hook? And he kidnaps Peter Pan's kids and takes them away to Never Neverland. Uh, but fear not, Tinkerbell, starring Julia Roberts, shows up and, uh, and takes Peter Pan to Never Neverland to rescue his kids. Here's the problem. Peter Pan is in complete denial that that's who he is. He believes his name is Peter Panning, and he's a lawyer from New York. There's a complete denial about who he is. But then something incredible happens. He's hanging out with the Lost Boys, and they name him. They name him. They say, you are Peter Pan. There's this one part where this little kid goes up and goes, here you are, Peter. And, like, from that moment on, 
from that moment on, it's game on. And it's Peter Pan seeking to live into the identity he's been given. He's already Peter Pan. Now he's just learning to live like that. And same thing for each of you. And in baptism, you're made a son or daughter of God. That you're united to Christ. That never changes. And now your life becomes about living into that identity, realizing who you are in Jesus. And so we don't do that alone. And that's why we have a local church. That's why we have community groups. And that's why we're doing this thing called one-to-one. And so I do want to encourage you, if you're saying, what what are you talking about? What does it look like for me to live into my identity uh, in Jesus? I want to invite you to, to fill out one of those, fold it in half, put it on the table in the lobby. Sandy will take it from you. Uh, and, and have a mentor help you discover what it is to live into your identity in Jesus. But let's talk to him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of baptism. That in these waters, in what seems like such a simple act, you promise to be at work. You give us an identity, Lord, that lasts. Help us not to to put our hope in, in false identities that will disappoint, but to put our hope in you. That you've called us your sons, you've called us our, your daughters. I pray for my friends gathered here that they would realize that. That they'd see the great love that you've lavished on us through sending us Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.